Father God, thank you again for this blessed time of worship today and everyone who you've brought uh, to be together and to now hear your word and to be eager and engaged and energetic listeners as we do the best we can to deliver what your word has to say to us as clearly and as faithfully as possible, God, so that Christ would be seen and our hearts and our, our lives would be transformed by the continuing power of your gospel and your transforming grace. Thank you again, God, that your word will accomplish its purpose, and I pray, Lord, for every soul here that, that, that it would penetrate and pierce us and uh, encourage us, God, uh, lift us up that we might live more and more for Christ. We thank you for these things in his name. Amen. We're continuing in the Gospel of Mark, so if you can, please turn there in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, it would be helpful to grab the one in front of you on the pew, and uh, the Gospel of Mark is where we've been for the last while, and one of the most remarkable and important and assuring truths about Jesus Christ that we learn from this very Bible is that he, as the holy son of God, had a completely sinless nature and that he committed no sin whatsoever in the entirety of his life. If we stop and think about it for a moment, we quickly realize that Jesus could be the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins because he was perfect and only because he was perfect because only he never committed any sins throughout his own life. Every moment of every day, all the way to the cross, and even on that cross. If he had sinned even one time, we would have no Savior, no salvation, no hope, because only a perfect sacrifice, a holy, unblemished, spotless, only a perfect sacrifice could take the place for our sins. And this is what we celebrate every, every Sunday. It's the reason why we're here. We should celebrate it every single day. And the Bible teaches what theologians call the impeccability of Christ. And this is the doctrine that Jesus was not able to sin. And the question is asked, could Jesus have sinned? After all, He was 100% human, as we know. So the Bible says, in answer to that question, could Jesus have sinned? No. And the, the phrase that's used is called the impeccability of Christ. And I've shared this before with you, but um, I just want to briefly share once again. Pastor Clint Archer has a very helpful analogy here. But he writes, since Jesus is God, God cannot sin. So in his 100% divinity, Jesus could not have sinned, even when Satan tempted him or whatever happened. But in his 100% humanity, he did experience the full temptation. In other words, he could not have sinned, but it sure felt like he could have. This is what's called the impeccability of Christ. Impeccability can be described like this. You know how woodpeckers chip away at a tree, pecking out tiny fragments of wood until there's a hole. Satan pecks at our resolve day after day until he gets through our defenses and we sin. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
But with Jesus, Satan could peck all day long and not make a dent because Jesus in his divinity was like a steel pole. The pecking may still have scratched and nicked and hurt, but it would never peck a hole in the armor of Christ's righteousness. When a woodpecker cannot peck a hole in metal, we call that metal impeccable. Now, that's a Savior who is worthy of our trust, of trusting in completely. That's a Savior worthy of our hope and all of our hope, one who could not sin and one who did not sin ever, ever. So I want us to take that thought and that truth into our passage today. And I'm going to read it. It's Mark chapter 11. And if you can, as we honor the Word of God, please stand as I read. Mark chapter 11, our passage today is verse 11 to 21. Mark 11, starting in verse 11, we're going to verse 21 today. This is the Word of God. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything... He left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den." The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Please be seated. Upon reading this passage, the British philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell accused Jesus of vindictive fury against an innocent tree, and it tarnished the character of Christ in his opinion. He wrote in his 1957 essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, quote, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue that Christ stands quite as high as some other people are known to in history, end quote. Even some scholars who are more friendly to the Christian faith are perplexed by this story. T.W. Manson, another scholar, says this episode is out of character for Jesus. He writes, quote, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. That is a a waste of supernatural power. Because the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season, end quote. There's all sorts of this kind of um, uh, commentary 
by, by some folks. But I want to ask, what should we make of this somewhat perplexing narrative here, which takes place after that first Palm Sunday, a mere five days away from the cross? Hey, did Jesus sin here? And if not, why would he pronounce such a devastating curse on a fig tree? What's the significance of that? And what does this have to do with Jesus cleansing the temple, a story that most of us are familiar with? Well, our sermon title today is What Jesus Curses and Condemns. What Jesus Curses and Condemns. And the main idea is this. The Lord curses and condemns Israel's fruitless religious system. Jesus curses and condemns Israel's fruitless religious system. And it's through a live-action parable and a livid temple cleansing. Okay? Just pretty much straight from the text there. That's our main idea, our big idea. And uh, I want us to note in this passage, which uh, I'm actually cutting off at verse 21, because, uh, you know, to be tr- truth be told, it extends all the way to the end of um, to, to verse 26. And uh, that will be next week, though verses 22 to 26. It's kind of part one and part two, but I'm going to treat that separately, but within the context of Jesus' actions and teachings that we're going to learn today. So just keep that in mind as we go on next Sunday. And uh, for verses 11 through 21, which I just read, which is our passage this morning, I want you to note the the sandwich device that Mark uses to to tell the story. It's like A-B-A, right? The two A's on either end are like the, the, the bread, and the, the B part is the middle of the sandwich. So verses 11 through 14, Jesus curses the fig tree. That's kind of like the, the top bread. And then verses 15 through 19, Jesus condemns or cleanses the temple. And that's 15 through 19. And the last couple of verses, 20 to 21, the cursed tree is discovered as withered. Okay? So uh, just to talk through that, it's, it's, it's chronological. Matthew treats it as a little more thematic, so he arranges it a different way. But this is the way Mark does it, and um, it's more chronological in time. So it indicates some connection. Why did I bring that up? Because there's a connection between the temple cleansing and the cursing of the fig tree. Okay? So this, there's uh, lessons to be learned here. So if we had an outline, uh, just two main points today, and it's just kind of... Um, descriptive points. The first is 11 through 14, that Jesus curses the fruitless fig tree. Jesus curses the fruitless fig tree. And it says there that Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. As I mentioned, this concludes the the triumphal entry, uh, what's known as the triumphal entry, which we went over last week which uh, we should always understand it really as the lowly entrance of the humble Messiah rather than the triumphal entry, right? But um, that was the first Palm Sunday. All the shouting crowds, all the hosannas, all the worship, the adulation, the praise for Jesus, these zealous people, the mobs of people who were there, many of whom will be just as passionately screaming for Jesus' blood by the end of the week. And it's interesting that Jesus goes into the temple amid this scene. Okay, and as Mark writes... After looking around at everything, he left. And so pause there. Jesus looking around at everything in the temple. This sets up the events of the next couple days when he goes back to cleanse the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus was observing, examining, evaluating everything. His piercing gaze and inspection of all that was going on. 
in and around the temple, the entire area of the outer courts and buildings, even in the inner sanctuary. Mark alone writes this, and it's probably recounted to him by Peter, who was there, eyewitness with Jesus at the time, all to say that nothing escapes the sight of Jesus, and he misses nothing. And at the end of this momentous Palm Sunday, he leaves with the Twelve for the nearby town of Bethany, okay, just a couple miles east of Jerusalem. And he often stayed there during visits to the big city. Apparently, this was a safer location for him so that there wouldn't be a premature arrest by the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. But this was inevitably coming the next few days. But on the next day, the next morning, okay, making it Monday, Jesus is on his way back to the city and he becomes hungry, right? And just, again, this reminds us of the full humanity of Christ. He was fully human, truly human. And just like all human beings, just like all of us, he did get hungry. Verse 13 says, seeing at a distance of fig tree and leaf. Okay, so at some point on their two-mile walk to Jerusalem, Jesus eyes a fig tree along the way. And the tree clearly has leaves. Okay, it says in leaf, right? But he takes a closer look to see if it has any figs, any fruit. But he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And this seems to not make sense, okay, if you're reading that um, just on, on first reading. Why would one expect any figs on a tree if it was not yet the season for figs? Okay, but look carefully. Mark says Jesus went to see if perhaps... Perhaps he would find anything on it. This indicates, though it was not yet in season, at times fig trees bore some kind of fruit earlier, even prior to the actual season, even if only small, unripened figs. And these small, edible figlets were called pagim. And if there was a foliage, there were leaves on the tree, one could expect these untasty yet edible little figlet buds to be on the tree. But when Jesus looked, he found none. This tree was barren. It bore no fruit, even though it had leaves on it. So the leaves promised one thing, but it had not produced. Going on to verse 14, he says to it then, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. So upon first reading, Surface reading, it seems as if Jesus responds in a, in a fit of petty anger. He has, as he's hungry, but there's nothing on this tree to eat. He says, curse you, tree. Hey, but if it was anger, right, if it was a, a response of the flesh, that would be sin, wouldn't it? And as the Almighty Lord, we know that he does not, did not, as we went over, cannot sin. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is bringing a divine curse upon this fruitless fig tree. It's not merely in anger or frustration because he's hungry and wants to eat. There's actually a lesson that he's teaching his disciples. It says who are listening, who are listening through this curse. Remember again the context, folks. Okay, the day before, Palm Sunday, Jesus was looking around, gazing, examining everything, including all the crowds of people who were shouting out praises to him, bowing down before him, spreading their coats and spreading their leaves before him. Hosanna in the highest. He sees all of this. He hears all of this. What's 
what's really in the hearts of these people who will be quick to turn on him, he's seeing everything. He sees the going-on in the temple, the crass commercialism and exploitation that's happening there, which we'll get to in the next point. He sees the Pharisees and scribes and the Jewish leaders wringing their hands, plotting against him, the hatred that's been building up and culminating to this point. And so this is an opportune time for an object lesson for his disciples. Some have called it a a living parable or an enacted parable. I'm calling it a a live-action parable because Jesus teaches a lesson here not only in words but in real live action. He pronounces a curse on this leafy but fruitless fig tree. And we should understand and note this. The Old Testament prophets used the fig tree and the vine as symbols of the nation of Israel. A few verses for you. In Jeremiah 29, 17, Jeremiah compared sinful Israel to rotten figs. Jeremiah 29, 17. Hosea wrote in Hosea 9, verse 10 and 16, he said, he writes, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But Ephraim, Israel, is stricken. Their root is dried up. They bear no fruit. Okay, even, though, even though Israel was like the first fruits of the fig tree, their roots had dried up and there was no fruit on the tree. Okay, it's a metaphor. Okay, during Joel's time, an invasion of locusts was ruining the nation. Uh, and what God called my vine and my fig tree. Okay, this is what Joel calls it in Joel 1 verse 7. And um, in other places in Scripture, the most common description of prosperity in Israel was to dwell under one's fig tree in peace and prosperity. 1 Kings 4.25, Micah 4, verse 4. Okay, so, so this action sermon that Jesus is teaching has these Old Testament allusions to the nation of Israel, to its spiritual leaders, to its rotting spiritual condition. With such blessings as being God's chosen people, as being the nation to whom God gave his prophets and to teach and warn and preach to Israel and to lead Israel, he gave them the the privilege of his revelation to them in the Old Testament scriptures, they should have produced much spiritual fruit. But like this fig tree, even though they had all the, the showings of religion and spiritual life, there was no fruit. Even with Jesus, the king, coming to them. Clearly as the Messiah who came to preach the gospel of God and the kingdom of God. Spiritual fruit and genuine faith was absent in Israel. Within a matter of days, the Pharisees and scribes, plots to kill him would come to fruition. That's what would bear fruit. Their evil, wicked schemes. And the crowd would, would follow along. So Jesus' curse of the fruitless fig tree is to symbolize God's judgment on the nation of Israel, on its spiritual leaders who are not leading, who are false teachers, and all the people who would follow after them, the whole system, okay, the priests, the people, the leaders, the laymen. So what is the, the principle? What is the application for us today? We are not the nation of Israel, um, but the principle applies, right? Leaves only. Only leaves is not enough. For the church, for us individuals, leaders and laymen, 
indirectly, this can apply to our lives as a, a warning given. Okay, to those who call themselves Christians, there's a great danger of mere profession of faith in Christ without actual possession of faith in Christ. We must evaluate our lives. Okay, are there just leaves on the outside making us look like there's fruit on the inside? Okay, others may not be able to tell. Okay, we, we, not, we might not be able to tell with one another. But what will Jesus see when he looks under the leaf of your life and your heart? And on a positive note, what does Galatians chapter 5 say as far as the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. Okay, if you are a Christian today, and you find yourselves growing in love for God, love for Jesus, love for others, in, in joy, in peace, if you're finding yourself growing in patience and kindness and goodness, by God's grace, you, you see that evidence of, of fruit in your life, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Maybe you've been working on these things and asking God to, to help you to grow and and. He's doing it. You're bearing that spiritual fruit. I say praise the Lord. Thank God that your, your, your faith is not a mere profession, but actual possession because you're bearing fruit of the Spirit for him. See, Jesus seeks fruit in our lives. Okay, if we are true Christians, he wants, he wants us to bear that spiritual fruit. Okay, listen to John 15. John 15, verses 4 through 6. He tells the disciples, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears what? Much fruit. And then he says, For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. John 15, 4 through 6. So I ask, dear Faith Bible Church family, and all those who are here with us today, are, are you bearing fruit, spiritual fruit, evidence, proof of the root, the vine, that you are connected to the vine, that you actually belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? You are his. And I say once again, those who are in him and bearing much fruit, praise the Lord. Praise him. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen? Amen. So Jesus, he curses the fruitless fig tree in our first point. That brings us to our second and last point here. But um, before we get to it, you need to look at the structure here again of Mark. Mark 11, in verses 12 to 14, I mean, just kind of simple ways to categorize this and, and uh, just arrange it in our minds. Verses 12 to 14 that we just uh, went over. Jesus displays human anger, hunger, human hunger, sorry. He displays human hunger. And then Jesus dictates a divine curse, and the disciples listen. Hey, are we listening this morning? Because hey, that's what it says at the end of verse 14. Disciples were listening. And then in verses 15 through 18, we're going to cover that next. Okay, Jesus displays holy anger. And then Jesus teaches 
Holy Scripture. And then in verse 18 there, it says the religious leaders listen. They hear and they fear. Okay? So just a neat way that, that Mark has uh, arranged this. But that leads us to our second point, which is this, verses 15 to 21. Jesus condemns commerce in the temple. I couldn't think of anything more clever than that, but it's basically a description, okay? Jesus condemns commerce in the temple. Verse 15 says, Then they came to Jerusalem, back in the big city, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money chairs and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. This is Jesus and the twelve once again. At some point Monday, after the fig tree was cursed, remember this is Passion Week, so we're just taking note of the days and the events of Jesus' journey, final journey to the cross. Surely the things that he saw that, that previous day, remember he was looking at everything were on his mind and heart. Hey, can we imagine just for a moment the abominable scene Jesus saw when he looked around the temple? I mean, what a, what a sorry spectacle that greets his eyes and his ears and even his nostrils. Hey, and anyone who's, who's like visited a farm uh, can attest to the, the aroma hey, that hits you when, when you enter into that area. Can you imagine just the, the temple with all these animals in the outer court there? Just the, the smell that, that came up. This is the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus observes the court being desecrated. It's like a, a bazaar, you know, like a flea market with vendors selling souvenirs, selling sacrificial animals for profit, selling food, along with those money changers because Roman coinage was not acceptable according to the Jewish law. And so greedy money changers could overcharge for that as well. And don't forget, too, especially at Passover time, the hundreds of thousands of people who would be in Jerusalem crowding the temple, making up this, this marketplace scene. So the sovereign king, Jesus, he wastes no time. He comes to the temple. He starts cleaning house. Driving out those who are buying and selling, overturning tables, money changers, carrying merchandise, Okay, those who are carrying, he would not allow them to do that. Like that word driving out, okay, and all those those verbs that are that are written there, these are overtly physical, aggressive acts, okay, not to be softened. This is the Almighty Lord in forceful action. Okay, it was it was real, live, actual people that he was driving out, okay, pushing out, forcing out of the temple. Okay, this, the same word is used in Mark for him when he's casting out demons hey, with that kind of force. It was money changers' tables that he turned and, and was flipping over. Hey, one can imagine all the coins and such just flying around and being scattered, and the owners just on their knees trying to, trying to get it back, gather it back to themselves. It was the seats that the dove sellers were sitting on that the Lord basically threw aside, just shoved aside. He removed these people from their seats. Obviously, this is not an out-of-control temper tantrum, but rather a display of righteous, holy anger. And those two things might look similar, but it makes all the difference who is doing it and the heart of the person who's doing it. So listen to Psalm 5, Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6. It says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, and no evil dwells with you. 
The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Okay, this is describing God, right? You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Okay, all this is going on in the, the crass commercialism of the temple that Jesus was observing. And, and you know what the next verse in Psalm 5 says, verse 7, and this is David writing. He continues, he says, But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. What, what a complete polar opposite picture of what is actually supposed to be happening in the temple, the house of God. Just uh, one more verse here, Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13. Psalm 7, 11 through 13, it says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. That's indignation, holy anger. If a man does not repent, listen to these verbs, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Not just shafts, but fiery shafts. And what is that for? To destroy. And so this is a, a picture of God's righteous indignation and Jesus' fury in this temple scene. And it says there in verse 16, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Okay, It's likely that people were carrying their wares and their supplies and taking a shortcut uh, through the, the temple to where they were going, and the Lord would have none of that. So in verse 17, he began to teach them and say, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The Lord has everyone's attention. He begins to instruct them, all those around who are undoubtedly shocked at his actions. And he says, Is it not written? Okay? The Lord Jesus, going to the Old Testament scriptures, and two especially he references. Number one is Isaiah 56, verse 7. Isaiah 56, 7. And it says there, even those, and it's talking about pagans, okay, foreigners. You've got to reference verse 3 and 6 of Isaiah 56. Even those, these pagans, these foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. In other words, God's temple was to be a, a place of holiness, set apart for praying, for talking to God, for communing with God, for being in the presence of God, for worship of God. And it was an invitation for even foreigners, even Gentiles. And this scene is largely happening in the court of the Gentiles where they were only allowed in that outside area. They were not allowed by penalty of death to go inside the, the holy part for only the Jews and for the priests. And so this was for even Gentiles to come, those who had true faith in the one true God of Israel. And Jesus says, but you, it's supposed to be a, a place, a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, you have made it a robber's den. And this is the Lord's accusation, his indictment against the, the spiritual leaders and all the people who are following them, making the temple of God into a, a den of thieves, a cave of corruption, that's what all this fuss is about. And he's quoting from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Okay, but I'm going to take it back a few verses. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 9. And God is speaking here, and he says, Will you steal 
murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered we are saved that you may do all these abominations and then verse 11 says has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight behold i even i have seen it declares the lord so a quick note is that jesus begins and ends his three-year ministry on earth with this temple cleansing in the other places in john chapter 2 and some commentators say that that uh, it's describing the same thing that's happening here in Mark 11, but I believe that was in the beginning of his ministry, um, just down in Judea, and John chapter two. Different things were happening there, and different uh, responses. He says, "Zeal for his father's house continues," and so that is the the first um, incident of of temple cleansing that Jesus does, and it's the beginning of his ministry, and here it is at the end once again. And what an indictment it is on the false religion and the Jewish spiritual leaders and all who are following them. His zeal for his father's house continues to consume the Lord. So verse 18 describes the chief priests and the scribes who also were listening, but they were just hearing. And so ironically, these people who were supposed to be the keepers of the temple and of God's word themselves, the ones who should have cared about what was going on in God's house, instead of agreeing with Jesus' teaching and sharing in his righteous anger about what was going on, okay, they could have humbled themselves and said, ooh, he's right, we're wrong. Instead, they become even more angry with him and so begin seeking to destroy him. And we know that they're not just starting, but it's the culmination. Okay, the plot's just coming to fruition now. His words and actions of holy anger were unacceptable to them, and so he must be destroyed now. And it says that they were fearful. They didn't just hear, but they had fear. Why? Because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. I think it's Luke's uh, gospel or, or Matthew that says that they were hanging on his every word. And so the, pro the priests and scribes, they were being exposed their teachings of works righteousness, their hypocritical legalism, their ritualistic keeping of the law with no real reverence for God, which turned the temple into a dirty den of thieves. It was all being shown here by the Lord. And so, as Psalm 36 verse 4 says, the ungodly plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. And this describes the the religious leaders who are plotting against Jesus now. Martin Luther, on September 6, 1520, so a few years after the Reformation started, he wrote in an open letter to Pope Leo X, quote, The Roman Church, once the holiest of all, has become the most licentious den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the kingdom of sin, death, and hell. It is so bad that even the Antichrist himself, if he should come, 
could think of nothing to add to its wickedness, end quote. Some strong and bold words from Martin Luther to the Pope in 1520. But it might describe some of the church today in America when we consider what Jesus was looking around at and observing and evaluating in the temple back then. The church today in America, especially the the mega churches, they really need to be careful of that big business mentality. Okay? And pastors and leaders who are supposed to be shepherds of the people, acting more like like CEOs or CFOs of a corporation, okay? and, and working and planning uh, to, to keep the machine rolling. Sadly, we, we see a lot of that happening today. On an individual level, we, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be wary of outward worship and doing all the right things, coming to church, singing the songs, bowing our heads. Is this, is this real faith in Christ, genuine worship of God, or just a ritual that we go through on Sundays? Hey, I want to encourage those who are so eager to come to church. We just love to come to church and hear from God's word, hear his, his word preached, who, who come to, to, to be with and in the presence of God and in the presence of the saints in fellowship, who come to church to truly worship God, praise him, praise him that we are, again, bearing that fruit. And it's not the case where we're just professing Christ, but actually possessing him. I ask again, if Jesus were to come looking around at everything, Okay, in, our, in our church, would he see a, a house of prayer and a, a place that's inviting to all the nations, all the Gentiles, all the unbelievers? Or would he see nothing but leaves okay, or even a, a den of thieves who's just doing this for financial gain? Let us become a, a house of prayer more and more, a fruit-bearing people, a people and a church who are worshiping him in spirit and in truth, as he says in John chapter 4. So as we start to wrap this up, a few more verses, verses 19 through 21, I just want to point out, um, and this was evident to probably most of us who are listening even as it was being read, but the deity of Christ, the power and authority of Christ, what happens there when they evening came they go out of the city as they they were passing by in the morning still on the same road right because they saw the same fig tree that jesus had cursed just the day before it was withered from the roots up and peter says to him rabbi look the fig tree which you cursed has withered right and so um they observed this maybe today uh, protester protesters would be demanding arbor justice there's so much justice being protests for these days, but I just want to point out what Jesus said would happen has happened. Okay, this tree that he cursed, pronounced judgment on, is withered from the roots up. Okay, there was no way coming back to life for this tree, no fruit bearing for this tree, just as Jesus pronounced. So, so Jesus has the power as God to make a judgment and for it to come to pass even the very next day. So let's end with a quote from good old J.C. Ryle. And he's 
talking about genuine faith here. In an 1878 article entitled Reality, a genuine faith, he uh, references some scripture, Jeremiah 6, verse 3, about reprobate silver, okay, fake silver. And this passage here, Mark 11, verse 13, where that phrase there says nothing but leaves. In 1 John three eighteen, the Apostle John says, Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In other words, in real, real evidence of faith, in actions. And Revelation 3, verse 1, also, John writing, he says, You have a name, talking to the church of Sardis, You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. So the question is, do you have the real thing? And J.C. Ryle says, writes this, quote, Listen, if we profess to have any faith at all, let us take care that it is real. I say it emphatically, and I repeat the saying, let us mind that our faith, our religion, is real. And he says, what do I mean when I use the word real? I mean that which is genuine and sincere and honest and thorough. I mean that which is not base and hollow and formal and false and counterfeit and sham and nominal. Real religion is not mere show and pretense and skin-deep feeling and temporary profession, and outside work. In other words, like that parable of the soils, right? When troubles come, when persecution comes, when the influence of the world comes, it it chokes out our, our profession of faith and it disappears. And we say, I'm through with Christ. I'm done with the church. That's not real faith. Real faith is something that is inward, solid, substantial, intrinsic, living, and lasting. It is eternal life, okay? And here's the final part of it. We know the difference between base coin and good money, between solid gold and tinsel, between plated metal and silver, between real stone and plaster imitation. Let us think of these things as we consider the subject of real faith. What is the character of your religion, your faith? Is it real? It might be weak and feeble and mingled with many infirmities, but that's not the point before us today. The question is this. Is your faith real, genuine? Is it true? So to end, let's remember that it's it's right before this event that Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel and the, the rejection of them who had an outward show of religion, but it produced no fruit. Okay, their worship was like this, this fig tree, okay, nothing but leaves. And Jesus told those hypocritical people, okay, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Matthew 21, verse 43. Okay, and praise God by his grace that That was not and will not be the end of the story for all of Israel. There there is a a plan for Israel. But the point is this for us, to us today. Is your faith genuine? Is your faith in Christ true? And what are the, the fruits 
of that faith. Okay, praise God for him working in us. Again, yet not I, but through Christ in me. But we need to examine ourselves once again this morning, dear church, and especially those who may not truly know Christ yet. Come to faith in him so you can bear that fruit, so you can live a life that is glorifying to God and you can be used of him to spread the gospel to all the nations. Let's pray. Dear God, as it says here in the verse, the, the disciples were listening. I pray that, that we would be listeners too. We would be listening even right now. And not like the hypocritical religious leaders who are hearing but fearing. We have no cause to fear if we are in Christ and abiding in him. And we truly belong to him. And thank you, God, that there's much freedom in in allowing us to follow Christ and, and bear spiritual fruit in our lives. Let us not settle for religious fig leaves, God. Let us truly bear fruit, what you are looking for in, in our temple, the, which is our bodies, the Holy Spirit the, who, who, who resides in us. And may we count those as, as blessings and, and lift them back up to you as praises. And more and more, God, love you, love one another, and love the lost, that we might bear that fruit and, and make our lives useful for you. So thank you, Father, so much for the clarity of your word and, and um, for bringing this to us today. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.